0: It's an honor to share with you this morning. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit will teach our hearts and minds in Jesus' precious name. The title of the sermon was, Do Not Judge God. I see that many people become angry when something terrible happens. For example, a child develops cancer and they blame God. They say, if God was good, he would not let this happen. He must be capricious, erratic, unpredictable. I would like to confront him and make him explain his conduct. I know more and would do a better job than God does. So the Bible has a very good answer for anyone who feels like that. There was a man named Job. He was a good man. Cool. A man, a God-fearing man, a wealthy man. He had ten grown children. He was honored in his community for his wisdom. He was appreciated for his kindness. And suddenly, when one day, all he valued was gone. All his flocks and herds, even his children and his wealth, was gone. (laughs) I moved my paper too fast. Okay, he got up and tore his robes, shaved his head, fell to the ground and said, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He did not charge the Lord with wrongdoing. Later, on another day, he was struck with painful sores from head to foot. And his wife saw his terrible condition and his terrible suffering. And she said, Curse God and die. But he would not. Later, three friends came to comfort him. But, out of his terrible suffering, he cursed the day he had been born, wishing that it had never happened, if it had only going to come to this. For I was born, and all that I had hoped for, and now it's destroyed. They were not impressed, and over time they argued that he was an evil man, and deserved all this and more, and that God was punishing him. He knew they were wrong and began wanting to talk to God, to explain his case, and for God to answer his questions. If any man ever deserved an explanation from God, it was Job. All of this and how God handled it is recorded in the Bible, in the book of Job, probably the earliest book of the Bible. At the end, God comes to Job in a huge storm and says... Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. And he begins to question Job. He doesn't make any explanations. He begins to question Job. He says, Where were you? Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Do you control the seas? Do you know where the clouds come from? Where do light and darkness come from? and many more questions about creation and wondrous animals, how they are born, and why they behave as they do. And Job had no answer. And God said, If you cannot understand these simple things, how can you presume to judge me in the matters of wisdom, justice, and truth? And Job put his hands over his mouth and had no answer. When we get to this conclusion that God is all-wise and all-powerful, we are ready to hear what He has to say and not judge Him. We find out His plan and purpose and how we fit into it. If we go to the Bible, to the Word of God, and to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we find out that, for God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We have recorded the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, and even his suffering and death. If God spared not his only Son, be aware that we who follow will also not be spared. Jesus was killed, and most of his disciples were also killed, but his words live on for us. Remember, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Now we come to the heart of the message today, taken from one of Jesus' great sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus here tells us what we must do and be as his disciples. The Beatitudes are a combination of God's grace and our effort. God gives us, but we also need to respond and work with his grace. Be poor in spirit, not full of pride, self-will, or our own ambitions. Mourn over the conditions of the world in our sinful state be meek, have a spirit of gentleness and self-control hunger and thirst after righteousness right doing hunger and thirst after right doing be merciful and you will be shown mercy there is justice, mercy and grace in this world justice is getting what you deserve mercy is when you don't get what you deserve, and grace is when you get what you do not deserve. Be pure in heart, with your only intention being to please God. Be peacemakers, and you will be called the sons of God. That is our task. Be persecuted, insulted, be falsely accused of evil because of Jesus. Rejoice! That's what he calls us to do. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. Salt is necessary for life, for people, for animals, and most plants. And we can't make it. We have to find it. We have to eat it. It has to come from outside of us. Lack of salt leads to nausea, lethargy, lack of appetite, and eventually many physical ailments. Salt was the most important item to prevent decay and preserve food. Salt also adds flavor to food, and at times was valued equal to gold. The world is rotting and decaying, and if our Christianity is also rotting and decaying, it won't be any good. Salt is the opposite of corruption, and it prevents corruption from getting worse. We are the force keeping man from the corruption of sin. Our job is to preserve the world from decay and add flavor to life. Otherwise, we are good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by man. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand that it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Light is needed because the world is in darkness. Our light will illuminate and expose what is there. We have to show the world. It's tempting to hide our light because it will draw the world's attention and cause those who hate the light to oppose us (coughs) because of their evil nature. Many prefer darkness because their deeds are evil. So let your light so shine that others may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Not for our glory, but for for the glory of the Father. Light gives the gift of guidance so that those who have lost their way can find the path. And the city set on a hill is is a product of social order and government. It is against chaos, and disorder. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. Jesus came to free the law from the way the scribes and Pharisees had wrongly interpreted it. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Their righteousness extended to the letter of the law. But Jesus' righteousness extended past that to the heart. The disciples in the field, as they went on the Sabbath, eating some grain, they were accused of harvesting. (laughs) And, you know, they were guilty. And Jesus said, no. The woman taken in adultery... This woman needs to be stoned. The law says she has to be stoned. Jesus wrote in the sand, and then he said, All right, then, whoever was without sin, he can cast the first stone. And from the oldest to the youngest, they wandered off. And he said to the woman, Where are your accusers? She said, There are none. He said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. That's how his law exceeds the the Pharisees' laws. Um, It's a righteousness in kind, not degree, a different kind of righteousness that Jesus is bringing to us. Not in the degree, not counting every mint leaf, exacting, it's of the heart. So the Pharisees restricted God's commands, as in the law of murder, we'll get to that, but extended the commands past his intention as in the law of divorce. We'll look at that in a minute as well. Jesus said, You have heard it said of those of old, You shall not murder. But I say, Whoever murders, whoever is angry with his brother without cause, whoever says, Raka, and whoever says, You fool, are all in danger of the judgment of hellfire. Jesus stretches his scepter over the realm of inward lust and forbids uncleanness in the heart. Jesus exposes the essence of the scribes' heresy. To them, the law was really only a matter of external performance, never the heart. If the murderer didn't kill someone, he wasn't guilty. Jesus brings the law back to the matters of the heart. Raka, is almost an untranslatable word. The idea behind it is nitwit, blockhead, numbskull, boneless, brainless idiot. It describes more of a tone of voice of one who despises another with arrogant contempt. There is a meeting of angry contempt exaggerated to passionate abhorrence. The character of the accuser is revealed when you want to murder. You're in danger of hellfire. If you bring, Jesus said, if you bring your gift to the altar and there, remember some, that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly. As much as possible, live peaceably with all men. Often, all that is required is to give a little extra or do a little more. Err on the side of kindness, patience, generosity, forgiveness. Your relationship with God depends on your relationship with your fellow man. Jesus said... You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Like murder dealt with previously, Jesus brings this back to the heart, and lusting, planning, meditating, brings you in danger of judgment. Some people only keep from adultery because they're afraid to get caught and in their heart commit adultery every day. It's good that they keep from the act of adultery, but it's bad that their heart is filled with adultery. And this applies as well to just about everything we can covet with the eye or mind. It extends to money, fame, power, possessions. These things become other gods ahead of our one true God Jesus said if your right eye causes you to sin pluck it out and cast it from you Jesus uses a figure of speech and did not speak literally even if you cut off your hand or plucked out your eye you could still sin with the other hand or the other eye and after both are gone You can especially sin with your mind. Jesus simply stressed the point that one must be willing to sacrifice to be obedient. If part of our life is given over to sin, we must be convinced that it is more profitable for that part of our life to die rather than condemn our whole life. There are things we must give up. It has been said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. In Jesus' time, divorce had deteriorated to the point where men divorced their wives for almost any reason, even if they burned the dinner. They said, well, it can't be too quick. We need to make you think about it and come and get a certificate of divorce. So the certificate of divorce prevented it from happening in the heat of the moment, as later it had to be written up by a scribe and signed by witnesses. This man had divorced his wife, blah, blah, for these reasons. This is so far from Jesus' teaching and the Spirit of Christ. There is no just cause for divorce except for unfaithfulness, adultery. The certificate became an instrument of cruelty against wives. We know that wives had very little power, little wealth, and so on. And so, to be divorced was a terrible, cruel thing. There was nothing done to restrain the unjust caprice of husbands. Again, the erratic behavior... Nobody, they didn't try to stop the, they just wanted to make a decree, so now it's legal. Jesus says that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who was divorced commits adultery. Jesus said, Do not swear oaths, but let your yes be yes and no be No. In Jesus' time, men were given to swear oaths, and many times the oaths were to deceive the people they were swearing to. Having to swear an oath meant that your character is too weak to keep its word. So God, your head, heaven, earth, your mother's grave, must be compelled for you to keep your word. You have no control over any of these, so your oath is meaningless. Jesus said, keep your word. Be honorable. You do not need to swear an oath. Say what you will do and do what you say. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This saying was meant to limit punishment and prevent revenge all out of proportion to the offense. It was never meant literally and was up to the governing body of the community to specify the penalty. The tendency of individuals is to exact much more severe punishment than the offense requires. Jesus said, Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. In Jesus' time, a slap to the right cheek was a backhand slap a very serious insult, and it could be punishable by a heavy fine. Jesus said not to resist evil and retaliate, but offer the other cheek and leave it to God to defend us. We need to be willing to not resent insults and not to seek retaliation for a slight. Jesus said, If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Give more rather than fight for your rights. And this follows with the rest of the teachings today. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. At that time, Judea was under Roman military occupation. Under military law, any Roman soldier might command a Jew to carry his soldiers pack for one mile but only for one mile. Jesus here says, go beyond the one mile required by law and give another mile out of a free choice of love. This is how we transform an attempt to manipulate us into a free act of love. You have heard it said You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? The Jews generally looked upon all the uncircumcised as not their neighbors, but their enemies whom the precept did not obligate them to love. So the uncircumcised, not my neighbors, they're enemies, and I don't need to love them. Jesus reminds them that in the sense God meant means it, all people are our neighbors, even our enemies. To truly fulfill this law, we must love, bless, do good, and pray for our enemies not only for our friends Jesus really acknowledges that we will have enemies yet we are to respond to them in love trusting that God will protect our cause and destroy our enemies in the best way possible by transforming them into our friends And this is the purpose of love. The disciples' attitude to religious persecution must go beyond non-retaliation to a positive love. It's a hard task. But hard or not, it must be done. Even though it is so contrary to our foul nature and former practice. So to reiterate... We respond to our enemies in love, trusting that God will protect our cause and destroy our enemies in the best way possible by transforming them into our friends.